Hello and welcome to this week's Hey Podcast, where each week we're asking one of the speakers appearing at Hey 2021 to select their favourite moments from our archive. This week it's the turn of writer and broadcaster Natalie Haynes. An inspirational, thoughtful or entertaining event that I've seen at Hay. Well, the good thing about Hay is that pretty well all the events are inspirational, thoughtful and entertaining. Um, so I don't really have to pick between them. Um, the difficult thing has been picking which one I should talk about. I was like, oh, I have to discount all my friends because nobody wants to hear me just go, my friends are cool, they're really nice. Um, even though obviously that is true. Um but I have picked um, sort of friends, but um, acquaintances who I like a lot rather than uh, close friends, but only because I haven't stalked them sufficiently because there's been a pandemic on. Stop, stop judging. Um, and that is um, the event that Colm Twibbeen and Lisa Dwan did um, about their version of uh, Antigone um, called Pale Sister. Now, I know some of you will have seen um, this shown on BBC Four earlier this year. Um, but I think they did one of their earliest performances or certainly earlier performances um, of this show um, or readings of this show at Hay. Um, I, I'm really interested in, in the Antigone story and the story of the, the Royal House of Thebes anyway. Um, and obviously I was already a fan of uh, Colm's work because he is a genius. Um, and so uh, I I loved him when I read, I can't remember which, which book of his I first read, but Brooklyn, I think probably, uh, late to the party as always. Um, and uh, I think I, I still think his Testament of Mary, and I say this as a godless person, um, is, is just one of the most beautiful books um, I've read in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years. Um, so I was already excited that he was taking on the story of Antigone and would have been excited even if he hadn't been working with Lisa Dwan, who is just one of the most extraordinary actors of her generation. She just eats the stage um, and everything around her kind of uh, feels like it illuminates her. Does that make sense? This is a weird thing to say if you're going to listen to the audio and not watch the video of something. But um, Lisa is just one of those performers who, um, I, I don't know, the room suddenly sort of becomes her stage and her lighting and her microphone. I find her absolutely compelling um, to watch and to hear. And I know that, that you'll know her best from doing Beckett, and you should, because obviously she understands performing Beckett better than pretty well anyone else alive, I would guess. Um, but the story of Antigone is the one which has my heart. The story of a young woman who believes that her family... Um, values, I suppose, but not in the sense that we might mean it, are more important than the values of the state um, and who therefore um, has to decide whether to be um, obedient or, as she perceives it, right. Um, I hope you enjoy it. You're very welcome to this rehearsed reading of Pale Sister, which is the play that I've been working on with Lisa Dwan. Um, this is narrated by Ismene, who's the sister of Antigone. And um, you must, we have to remember, just keep in the back of our minds, that these are the children of Oedipus and Jocasta. And um, you don't really need to know anything else. Everything else is explained in the play. Lisa and myself began to work on this in January. I produced a version last August um, in prose, more or less. And Lisa and myself began to work on this every day from January onwards in Columbia University in New York. It's a thing called the Antigone Project. We brought in everyone we could to help us with it, and we worked with a great number of students 
and a great number um, of prof professors in the whole area of classical studies or law or um, e even um, um, English literature, just, just, just to see what we could do with this. And um, so it's a collaboration where we, some days, um, I would write a scene, Lisa would give it back to me by Dropbox within an hour, I'd rewrite it, and then we would talk for an hour on the phone. And so, so, it's, so it's been going on like that since January. And uh, so um, anyway, um, this is um, Pell's sister and Lisa Duan. And I'm told, you know, th this is not ancient Greece, so I, d I, I don't have the power edict, but I mean, I'm just, I've been told to behave like a tyrant in relation to the mobile phone. And if everyone could just please, please make sure, because it's a monologue and it's very, very hard to get back the space that you've created if someone's phone goes off. And so if you could really, really check. Have I done this properly? Have I done this enough? Anyway, thank you. In the hour before Dole and my sister comes into this room, hunted, wounded, she shivers, her movements darting and then slow and furtive. There is not a sound. I do not know if I am afraid. She turns, her eyes like words. Her gaze pierces the air like a howl. This is the room where she slept, before they found her and took her away. Silence weighs heavy now, like a cave whose mouth has been closed up with stones and clay. My sister is looking for an opening so that she can find light and cry out, but there is no weak place among the stones. There is no opening. All the time that she is here, she keeps her hands covered. Now don't pull them away, let me see. My sister's fingers have been bitten. I mean, they've been chewed at. They've been gnawed away by her very own teeth. I see the rawness, the bits of flesh, purple and white. The dark, caked blood and the stumps the teeth marks. And she smiles at me. She is proud, proud that she has not been idle. She will now face the morning light, clear-eyed, unflinching, knowing that she, when it mattered, made a difference in the world. She will persist. But there will come a time when she will only be a memory, a name. As time moves on, there will be no one left in the world who will have heard her voice. All the others are dead, except one who lies in a darkened room. I alone can speak. I alone. The pale sister. My sister wants me to walk towards the palace and stand in the sunlight staring at the palace. She wants me to accuse the king with my silence. Stand and accuse! Stare at him! 
She will speak about what must be done, what I must do, how I must stand still and gaze at Crane, and the gaze must be filled with calm accusation. Standing will be enough. Do not move. Just stand. Stand! He will be alone with his fear. And there will be many there to witness how afraid he is by day as much as by night. How he flinches at the smallest sound. He fears silence more than sound. Outside, in the streets, even by day, no one makes a sound. We live in a time of silence. Stand and gaze! That's all I ask, pale sister. I lift the lamp towards her and blind her with its rays and then she is gone. Gone to lurk in the shadows until the first rays of light appear. She will come back. She leaves the very air in this room disturbed as though the light itself is infused with her. Nothing will settle until she does. And I do not know when that will be. She will speak again. I mean, not about her fear or her suffering or what she did when he threatened her. She will not speak about how foolish she was or how impetuous or how brave or how... <gasps> Right? She was? Yes. Maybe that too. I wake and dream and wake again. In my sleep I am moving towards land, being pushed forward as each wave breaks and then pulled out again until I struggle not to drown. <coughs> and then I am alive again. It is morning in this room. I have been saved. I am the timid one who wants only quietness. I am like the waters on a calm day that come and go and make only a faint and comforting sound. A sound that makes no one afraid. But when I fade, so will the truth. And so I speak. That is why I speak. See, I live in the strangeness that comes after. I mean, I'm grateful for it, as we all are, for the soft sun in the morning sky before it becomes fierce. And we must move indoors, away from its hot grip. We wait again for twilight for the softening that returns as the birds dart through the air, feasting on the flies that have grown lazy now, less vigilant. I am not less vigilant. Too much has happened for that. As for my own most memorable event at Hay, that is actually really tough um, because doing hay is sort of generally memorable you know the I do a lot of book festivals in the in a normal year um and so 
that they do not exactly merge, but I find, as I used to with, with being a stand-up, that I can remember going to a place, but I can't really remember how the gig went. That's literally never true for Um The last time I was there is the event I'm picking, um, and that was um, an event live illustrated by Chris Riddell. Um, we we revived it uh, online in 2020, but um, the time I'm thinking of is 2019, but you can nonetheless see a revived version film from our respective homes from 2020. Um, and uh, it was just a an extraordinary, one of those things that only happens at Hay, where I was doing one of the very earliest shows for A Thousand Ships. Um, my novel had only come out, I don't know, two or three weeks before Hay started. And so I was just working out how to do the tour show. I wish I could tell you that I wrote the tour shows months in advance and learned them beautifully. I never do. I'm still writing them, usually in the cab on the way to the first event, if I'm absolutely honest, and sometimes well after that. Um, and that was true with ships. Um, and I, I knew I wanted to do a big set piece um, with the Iliad. Uh, as the sort of concluding part of the talk but I, I it just takes a long time to read a 24 book poem and work out how you're going to perform it in a um in an hour-long show <laughs> especially if it's not going to be the only thing you do and so I was still very much you know learning how I wanted to do it I guess and I think I'd performed the Iliad twice at that point I definitely didn't still know I didn't know it yet I needed notes I was uh, I was still having to check you know what happens in each book um, as I went along very quickly. They were very short notes, but I did still need to check because I just would forget. Yeah, book 11. Books 9, 10, 11, I always yeah, get lost doing those. Um, and I was sitting in the green room at Hay. I was quite nervous. It was quite a difficult time in, in my life in general that, at that point. Um, and I'm not normally nervous about doing a gig, but it was a late Sunday night and I was like, well, no one's going to come. Bill Bailey was on at the same time. Like everybody in their right minds will be going to see Bill. Nobody will be coming to see me. And then there were hundreds of you and it was miraculous. But more relevantly, as I was sitting in the green room beforehand, I mean, literally just a couple of hours beforehand, um, I sat next to Chris Riddell, the illustrator um, and writer and all round genius. And he said, oh, I'm going to illustrate this show and this show. And I was like, you don't fancy coming to do another one, do you? He was like, when is it? Tonight? Yes, I've got an hour free. I'll come and do it. And so it was the first time we'd done this amazing thing where I got to talk and improvise a show. And Chris improvised drawings at the same time. And I, I hardly ever get to make things like that with somebody else. You know, most of my work is solo. It's writing novels or, or being a stand-up comedian. It's being on stage on your own. So making something collaborative with something as brilliant as Chris it it was and always will be one of my absolute favorite gig memories so uh, whichever version you can catch on the hay player um you'll be looking at um something which makes me happy whenever i think about it i'm smiling now you can hear it so the big four as we might consider them are the trojan war the great war narrative we'll come back to it in a minute but there are three others and normally i would let you guess these um but since i can't hear or see you i'm gonna have to do your guessing in which case Wow, you know loads about classics. It's almost like you've studied it for your whole life. Well done, everyone. Um, so uh, let's do them in no particular order. The first is um, the Theban saga. Um, so that is the story that we know best um, from the Sophocles play Oedipus. Um, uh, Oedipus Tyrannus in Greek. Uh, Oedipus the king is how we might translate it. People inexplicably to me we'll still call it Oedipus Rex. Um, it makes it sound like he is either Roman or a dinosaur. He is neither of those two things. He is Greek. Oedipus 
Tyrannos. Um, I guess it's because the word tyrant has a, a sort of negative connotation in English, which it doesn't have in Greece. In, in Greek, it means a, a, a single ruler um, who didn't inherit it by birth. I think it's that uh, maybe slightly less specific than that. Um, I'm already sniggering at Chris. I hope you're already sniggering at Chris. Um, <laughs> so, um, but the Theban saga is a lot more complicated than just the story of Oedipus. It's multi-generational um, after the, I don't want to spoil these stories for you entirely, although, I mean, you have had two and a half thousand years or so to, to absorb them. So I do feel it's a little bit like it's your fault if you instead squandered that time doing something else, but there it is. Um, but it is multi-generational, sometimes almost too multi-generational, the story of Oedipus. And uh, there is eventually a big war after Oedipus has uh, been banished, spoiler, spoiler, at the end of the play, uh, Oedipus Tyrannus, um, his sons are supposed to share the, the um, throne of Thebes and they are supposed to alternate on uh, alternating years and they behave exactly like uh, two young men um, who both want the same thing might behave, namely uh, they have a big war <laughs> and that is um, the Aeschylus play Seven Against Thebes dramatises that and also the Euripides play uh, The Foinicide Phoenician Women. Um, but a big family saga to put it mildly, the Theban saga. Um, one that we probably know better than any I would say, certainly given that there is a bank holiday literally tomorrow, Jason and the Argonauts, um, a second of these big epic sagas from Greek myth. Jason and the Argonauts, of course, the Ray Harryhausen movie um, is, I think it's shown by law, actually, on a bank holiday in the UK. Um, that or Clash of the Titans, those are the rules. Um, the story of Jason and um, his Argo, the ship, and his Argonauts, the sailors of the Argo, who head off to uh, try and find the Golden Fleece. Um, En route, they find, well, on a blackman in the film, uh, Medea in the um, Pindar. <laughs> you can't have everything. They are slightly different. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, it will come as no surprise to anyone uh, that the role that Medea plays as a heroic helper um, is much reduced in the film. It's vastly more important um, in, uh, well, all of our ancient sources, really, Pseudo-Apollodorus, Pindar. Uh, you can find out more about this. Um, in my upcoming book, Pandora's Jar, but it's not out yet, so don't feel like this is a hard sell. It's not. You can pre-order if you want, maybe, but don't. you don't have to. Don't worry. It's fine. It's not for ages. Not out till October. Calm down. So, um, Jason and the Argonauts, the Theban saga, um, Heracles, Hercules is his Roman name. Obviously, we know him best because of the labours of Hercules. Um, I, as I say this quite often um, on the record, and I'm never joking, the Disney animated film Hercules is by far my favourite um, version of Greek myth on film, full stop, bar it. Maybe Black Orfeo I really like, but I still prefer, I'm not going to lie to you, I still prefer Disney Hercules. And Black Orfeo is a masterpiece that won the Palm d'Or, I think. So, you know, there it is. Um, I love Disney Hercules. I really like the fact that they focus on his heroic journey and not on the bit where he kills his wife and children. I think that's really appropriate. Um, in situational terms and they are doing a live action remake if you don't keep up with um all information on i've got a, i have a disney hercules lunchbox i like it so much that's not a euphemism that's simply an accurate description uh, because when uh, the film came out on i'm going to say video because i actually am 200 years old um i worked in blockbuster video um and uh, there was i have got time i've probably just got time to tell you this um and uh, there was <laughs> Um, uh, like a, you had to cut out coupons from the newspapers. Young people, ask your parents. There were once things called newspapers and you once cut pieces of paper out of them. I simply can't tell you why. Apparently people thought it was a good idea. And you had to bring in coupons, I think from the, it might have been the mail on Sunday, um, to claim your Hercules lunchbox. And every single day I basically came in and stood in front of them and gazed at them, hopefully, until eventually on the day that the, the um, 
like deadline was was there and nobody had brought in their coupons my manager let me have one and I said it's got a thermos I don't even drink hot drinks I'm still excited um so uh labors of Hercules the story of Hercules Heracles Jason and the Argonauts Theban saga and then granddaddy of all war narratives the Trojan War it is by far the most um well known I think of these these Greek sagas to us um in terms of the fact that I think it's entered our language uh, more than uh, any of the others and, and more considerably and, and for lots of good reasons, which we'll look at some of, not all of, because we've only got an hour and it's quite a big subject of study. I don't know if anyone's mentioned it. Classics, people call it. It's good. You should go and study it at college. Um, so uh, if you haven't already, you might know loads, in which case you can start heckling. Uh, but I haven't got time to read everything that you might send in because I will be obviously looking at <laughs> Chris's pictures because I'll have a nicer time. Oh, look, you've inadvertently mentioned Dominic Cummings, Chris. I can't believe it. Shh, shh. It's like mentioning the war. Make it stop. Not that war, this war. Anyway, um, so the Trojan uh, War is the story that we probably know it best from is the Iliad. Um, but that was once part of a whole set of epic poems which told the story of, of the war right from its very beginnings, from its... Um, uh, causation right the way through to its consequences and what we have in the Iliad is just a snapshot of the war just as the act the the full action of the Iliad is it's not even two months I don't think in the tenth the final year of the war so once upon a time there was a poem which came before it not in terms of when they were written we don't really know when they were written um, but uh, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey we, we attribute them both to a poet we call Homer but they're almost certainly by two different um, writers even that seems like a, not quite the right word um they are certainly the consequence of um multiple rhapsodes bards um creating uh oral poetry over time and then eventually they are kind of formalized into a, a finished poem that we know the the edited version of the iliad the odyssey that we know were formalized by editors of a man called pisistratus in the, i think sixth century bc homer himself is probably late eighth early 7th century BCE, um, and he's writing about events which happened in the Bronze Age to the Greeks. Um, the Trojan War is history rather than um, myth, it's just longer ago. And, um, and so the Trojan War happens sort of late 13th, early 12th century BCE, just to give you some idea of time. Um, so Homer is as far from the events of, of the Trojan War, assuming they had happened, as we are from uh, Henry VIII, Shakespeare, something like that, a bit further, Chaucer maybe, I'm not very good at modern history, sorry, I know Chaucer isn't, but to me he is. Anyway, once upon a time there was a poem called the Cypria, which told the story of the build-up to the war and the causes of the war. Um, it's in this poem, perhaps, that we would have found a story that we know um, really well about Paris, we tend to call it the Judgment of Paris, um, we'll talk a bit about that in a bit if we have time. Um, and a beauty contest for a golden apple on which is inscribed the phrase Ter Calister for the most beautiful woman and three goddesses who are determined to own it themselves, um, Hera, Aphrodite, Athene. Um, and, uh, and that would have been, the, you know, it's part of a big cause of the war. Paris chooses Aphrodite. Um, the bribe that she has offered him is Helen of Sparta, um, who will go on to become Helen of Troy, obviously. Um, and, uh, and so this is one of the big causes of the war. If I could interview anyone um, from the Hay Player archives who I haven't interviewed before, 
Uh, I've got to discount some of my friends in this, so I'd like to make a collective apology to all of them. Um, but I would pick Maggie Adderin Pocock. I really love her lecture on telescopes. I would like to know more about the history of the telescope. Um, and in general, I would like to talk to her about her work as a science communicator. And I'd like to talk to her about space science. And I never get to interview scientists <laughs> because I can't be trusted um, to have any idea what's going on. And truly, my knowledge of... Um, of space travel uh, and and space in general mainly comes from Lucian, um, who wrote a, a completely bonkers um, sort of satirical piece a couple of thousand years ago called True Histories, in which his heroes go to the moon and get involved in a war between the sun and the moon and and fight on giant ants and things like that. So I'm I'm not suggesting that's a factual representation of what's happening on the moon right now, but I would really, really like to talk to Maggie um, so she can give me a slightly more rounded and perhaps, who knows, more scientific view on what's going on. I'm very Earth-focused, I've realised, um, in my work. I don't spend very much time thinking about things beyond the globe. So it would be uh, illuminating for me in every sense. And I hope uh, she would also teach me more about um, her incredible work as a communicator because it's such a difficult thing to do to make complicated things look so easy and sound so accessible. And I just think she is fantastic at it. Just seeing the moon transforms me. It's, it's magical to me. I'm a scientist, and so I don't speak about magic much. But seeing the moon is just magical to me. And it's what seeing it in all its different forms, day or night. And many people don't realise we can see the moon during the day. And um, since writing the book, I must admit, I've been moon observing whenever I get the opportunity. And I've got some apps on my, um, uh, on my phone that tells me sort of where the moon is in the sky. So I'm sort of there scanning. OK, it should be coming up there in about five minutes. And so I just want to see the moon with every opportunity. And the thing is, the moon it has so many fantastic forms. Um, um, over the summer, um, the three of us, my husband, my daughter and I, went out to America because they had um, what they called the total eclipse of America. OK, it was actually going across America, but yeah, other people get total eclipses as well. <laughs> but um, it, was, it was quite a magical thing because it was an eclipse happening across the length of America. So we thought we'd go to the start. So we went to Oregon, uh, where the, uh, the eclipse started, and we saw it. And my daughter has seen many magical things because she travelled with me as I do sort of the sky at night and other things so um, she, she says she doesn't have a bucket list anymore because um, her a bucket list is just sort of, she's just she's seen the northern lights you know she's seen this but she also saw a total eclipse um, sort of her last summer and it was just totally magical and to see the sort of the look on her face as she saw it was just sort of quite transformative and to be there in the presence of the moon again so it, it takes on so many different forms but one of my favorite forms is a total eclipse of the moon and I remember seeing one of these uh, when I was a child and uh, what I didn't realize is there was an eclipse of the moon and I remember sort of uh, getting quite excited I was probably about you know 12 or you know 13 and I was getting quite excited because you know a full moon was coming and living in London you can't see that much in the night sky but with a full moon coming I thought oh yes I can see, you know, see them full moon and I remember going out and looking at the moon and it was looking like this I was like, but no, that's not right. It's meant to be a full moon. What's, what's happening? My world was turned upside down by this because it, uh, uh, people across the ages have relied on the regularity of the moon. And what I hadn't realised, it was actually an eclipse of the moon. But if you see a total eclipse of the moon, it is, again, quite, quite eerie because what happens is, slowly but surely, the moon disappears. And it ends up with a moon that is blood red. Now, when this happens, I can imagine this happening in ancient times, and people must have freaked out. Now, I, I see myself as a scientist, I've trained, you know, degree, PhD, I've studied these things. And when I saw my first blood moon, I, I was nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but 
And so this happens. And so it's another magical form of the moon. But why does it happen? Well, um, to explain that, I've got a, a short film clip here uh, from me appearing on Newsnight trying to explain why uh, the moon goes blood red during a total eclipse. So let's see if I can well, play with this. With me now is the uh, space scientist, Dr. Maggie Adderham-Pocock, who will be joined, I hope, uh, by the impressionist come amateur astronomer John Carlshaw shortly. Um, those were amazing uh, pictures. Today was uh, rather more disappointing. Well, I think the main trouble we've got today is cloud here in the UK. Mm. OK, now you've got some very interesting uh, props on the desk <laughs> in front of you. <laughs> what on earth are they for? Well, I wanted to try and explain why the moon goes blood red during a, a total eclipse of the moon. And um, because um, if this is the Earth and this is the moon, and actually, if you could be the sun, <laughs> he liked that. Right. So yeah. the sunlight's coming so, in. Yeah, where, where am I shining this? Um, just, uh, just straight ahead. Oh, straight ahead, okay. Lovely. Right. And then what we have is um, this is the Earth and this is the moon. And what happens is the Earth gets between the sun and the moon. So the moon is thrown into shadow. Right. Now well, that's an eclipse. Uh, yes, and it's a total eclipse of the moon. Now you'd think that within the shadow of the Earth, you'd see um, no light reaching the moon, so the moon should just effectively disappear. But that's not quite what happens because although you've got the Earth, the Earth is actually surrounded by a, a nice cotton wool atmosphere, a nice atmosphere, and the atmosphere acts as a lens and actually refracts some of the light onto the moon. So you do actually get some light hitting the moon. But that doesn't explain why it's blood red. And the reason it's blood red is because there are particles in the atmosphere, like you mentioned. Now, um, if I take the sun <laughs> and shine it through the water, it just comes out, usually, sort of as plain white. But if you add a few particles, so this is a well-known household uh, disinfectant, and so I add a few particles to the water, shake that up a bit, uh, now when I pass the light through the water, yeah, it goes yeah. yeah. orange. I'll leave it there. <laughs> if, if I can impress Jeremy Paxworth, oh, yeah, I think I'll leave it there. <laughs> so that explains why the moon goes blood red during a total eclipse. It's particles in our atmosphere. It's just like when we see um, the sun setting. It's sort of quite red because we have more particles in the atmosphere, sort of low down on horizon. And so the blue light gets scattered out and the red light is coming through. And so that's why the moon goes blood red. And that's why we get sort of orange sunsets. Now, quite to me, the moon is, uh, I'm, I'm taking a bit of precedent here, but the moon is a family heirloom because um, the moon has always been important for me, my family. And um, I remember as a child, my father used to tell me about the moon. Now, I've always wanted a picture of me as a young child, you know, sort of staring out into space, looking majestically. But this is actually a picture of me. And I've just dropped my ice lolly and I'm trying to pick it up. <laughs> so I'm not looking into space at all. I'm looking down at the ground. But my father always used to tell me about the moon that he used to see in Nigeria as a child. And uh, because he used to travel great distances to get to school. I think his school was about sort of 12 miles away. And he had his own, his old rally bicycle and he used to cycle that you know, across the African savannah. And the routes he was taking, they didn't have any street lights. And so when the moon was up and when the moon was full, suddenly you know, the way was lit up and his journey across, you know, across the African plains was so much easier because of the moon. So um, for me, the moon was my father's friend. And so it made a perfect companion for me. But then, of course, my father moved to the UK, and we were, um, I was brought up in London. And um, for my father, the moon wasn't quite the same magical thing that he had seen in, in Africa, in Nigeria. Because um, the London moon in sort of cloudy skies didn't do it for him. But me growing up in London, it really was magical for me. Because growing up in London, there's light pollution, there's all sorts of things that stop you from seeing the moon. A night like this, it was a full moon last night, and unfortunately tonight is cloudy. I was hoping we could step outside afterwards and look up, and there would be beaming down. Nah. <laughs> this is the UK and it's cloudy.
But sometimes, even when it's cloudy, if it's not too cloudy, you can't see the stars, but you can see the moon. And there's something magical about a city, an old city like London, bathed in moonlight. And so the moon of my father was the moon of Africa, but the moon that I grew up with is the moon of, um, uh, the moon of old London. And now I'm sort of passing on that heritage to my daughter. That's why I call it a he- an heirloom. Because um, when my daughter, and she's, uh, she's a bit older than this now, this was taken a few years ago, but when my daughter and I sort of see the moon, I sort of, if one of us see the moon or the other, hey, come and see, it's the moon. And we'll go out and sometimes we will, I confess, we will howl at the moon. <laughs> but there's just something fantastic about seeing it. And as we go through, and, and the other things I've talked about in the book, kids and the moon are just, are just a match made in heaven. Kids, and I think sometimes the moon brings out the inner child in each and every one of us. So um, uh, yes, it's, uh, for me, it is a sort of definitely an heirloom, which I want to pass on, and hopefully she will pass on to her kids as well. But there was another very iconic influence in my life, and that was, of course, Sir Patrick Moore. Now, the late, great Sir Patrick Moore. And, uh, but it's quite interesting because he was a fellow lunatic too. Because um, uh, much of his early work was actually looking at the moon. And he came up with some amazingly detailed maps of the near side of the moon. Because the moon is quite interesting. The moon is tightly locked to the Earth. And what that means is... I'm sorry, I've got my plush moon here. <laughs> so, <laughs> you always need a prop. <laughs> my daughter and I discovered this. In fact, we found a whole plush solar system. So we have a complete solar system at home made out of plush toys. <laughs> but for demonstration purposes, um, the moon sort of rotates around the Earth, but the same face of the moon is always facing towards the Earth. And so until sort of the 19, late 1950s, we could only see one side of the moon. And um, we always referred, when well, many people refer to the other side of the moon as the dark side of the moon, which always sounds slightly menacing. <laughs> but it's not dark side, it's actually a misnomer. That side of the moon isn't dark at all. Sometimes that side of the moon is full, sometimes it's in sort of various phases. But the, um, the side of the moon that faces towards the earth is always facing towards the earth so as the moon rotates around the earth the same side of the moon is always facing towards earth so up until the late 1950s this was the only side of the moon that we could see but we could cheat a bit because there is something known as librations. And librations allow us to see a bit more than 50% of the moon because if you compare these two pictures if you look here um, sort of, oh, my mouse isn't working. But if you look here and look here, this is the same um, Maria on the moon, but you can see it's moved slightly further over. Because depending on where the moon is towards us and depending where the Earth is, sometimes we can see slightly more. We can see slightly around the bend. So vibrations give us slightly more of, of the moon's surface, even though we are sort of um, uh, tightly locked to it. And so um, 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 Patrick Moore used to make very, very detailed maps and use those librations to actually give us a bit more of the moon so we could see about 59% of the moon rather than the 50% uh, the 50% we would usually see otherwise. And his maps were so detailed that he was very proud that when the Russians actually decided to send a, sort of a, a mission to the moon, they used some of the maps that he had developed from his detailed observations to actually work out what sort of things they wanted to take pictures of. So his uh, maps were actually sort of a, um, the part of the instigation to actually get an understanding of what the moon was. And it um, was, and wasn't until uh, 1959 that we saw the far side of the moon. And this is the first grainy image that we got back of the far side of the moon. Now, if you go back in time, and we, we will do that in a few minutes, um, people had wondered what was on the far side of the moon. You know, were there you know, um, aliens living there? Uh, people on the moon, but you're on the far side, so we can't see them. But unfortunately, it was just more craters. <laughs> so that's what we discovered. Natalie will be popping up throughout the festival, fixing the world with Ed Miliband on Friday the 4th of June, interviewing novelist Sarah Winman on Saturday the 5th of June, and chatting with the great Simon Armitage on Sunday the 6th of June. 
The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. Thanks for listening.